want you to uh, turn to one of the Gospels this morning, the third Gospel, uh, that is uh, Luke. I say Mark. Matthew, Mark, Luke. Turn to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 23. We want to look there again today. Luke chapter 23. I wanted to uh, do this in a single message, but I, I feel like I'm, we need to take our time. There's too much uh, in this uh, passage to, to hurry through. That you're welcome, Brother Tim. <laughs> you're very welcome. You've been interceding for me on that point. <laughs> you know, one of uh, the privileges, uh, responsibility, but it sure is a privilege of a pastor is many times to be present when someone goes to heaven and to be there uh, at the bedside or at the outer fringes and to... Uh, to see the interactions and to to hear some sacred words uh, that are said either between the person that's passing away in their last hours or sometimes just uh, between family members. But one of the things that uh, I have uh, noted through these uh, decades of ministry is that when people know that they're dying, and they do when people are dying, they they know it. They, they get real serious about things, very serious. They become laser-focused. And they begin to say some things. They begin to share some words that should have been shared a long time ago, uh, some sentimental things. They offer some apologies and um, some forgivenesses that should have been given uh, a long time ago, sometimes decades ago. And as I said, there's a sobriety in that room. There's a tenderness. There's a sweetness many times. There is a, a focus. Because everybody in that room, and especially the one that is in the bed, they know that, that life is slipping away and time is slipping away. I came across an interesting article this week. I just want to share just a brief portion with you. And it was about individuals that were present when a loved one uh, was passing away or someone else was passing away. And as I, I read through, I read through uh, a lot of these, pardon me, <coughs> a bunch of these. But I want to read just a handful of these to kind of give you an idea because this is kind of the prelude to what I want to share with you this morning. And uh, the first, and I'm going to quote, it won't be at length, but... Uh, this was an emergency medical tech on an ambulance in just a, a brief paragraph. And uh, he doesn't identify anyone, but here's what he said. He said, we'd gotten a call about a hit and run, and the police were on the scene first. A guy and his girlfriend had gotten into a fight in a parking lot, and it ended with him running her over and then backing up over her again. She wasn't doing well, and her vitals were tanking. We loaded her up into the ambulance, and she kept mumbling, Tell my mom. Please tell my mom. Naturally, I figured she was asking us to let her mom know that she was hurt. Well, the hospital takes care of that, so I put it out of my mind because we were taking care of her and working over her. But she flatlined before we arrived to the hospital. They did not get her back. My partner was finishing up her paperwork, and as we turned to give her wallet back to the staff, the nurse on duty, who I knew very well, was reading a dirty piece of paper. And she looked disgusted. When I asked what was up, she simply put the piece of paperwork down. It was a letter that was picked up near her purse, the lady that was hit on the scene, that said that she had gotten accepted into college. And that's what she was saying, tell my mom, tell my mom. So this lady knew that, that she was not well and she may not survive. And, and you know what was on her mind, I think, was uh, tell my mom I made it. Tell my mom I succeeded. 
You know, in, in those brief moments when it was narrowed down, it was th- this was what I wanted, what, apparently what she really wanted from me, and, and I made it. And then this one is not as long. Someone said, uh, I think this was in a nursing home, one man confessed to me that he was a Nazi war criminal. He didn't have dementia, and I don't think he'd ever told anyone else. He was in his mid-90s. I saw that he was German. I saw his age, and I asked if he had served in the war. As I'm a former combat arms soldier. He said, yes. So I told him that I was in the Army myself when I was young and asked some questions about what he did. After a little while, he broke down and talked about his participation in killing Jews in Russia. He was a junior officer in a Wehrmacht unit. I looked that up. A junior officer in a Wehrmacht unit. He knew that he was dying, and it all came out, and he cried for a long time. I'm nothing but a murderer. I'm nothing but a murderer. And he died a day or so later. And I put in my notes here, he, he, here at the end of his life, this focus that I talked about, he, he had to confess these, this secret of his heart to someone that he had held for, for so long, this, this dark secret. And then this one is, is so sad, which uh, is very true. Just simply someone said this, uh, uh, don't leave me alone. Don't leave me alone. And this just reflects this lady's, her fear, her fear. And I remember when I was going through this, before I, I read these, this article at the top of it, it there was a warning about reading these because of, of what they would do to you. And I remember, and I just selected these three because they, they grab you, don't they? They grab a hold of you, and, and they kind of take you to the end and say, well, I, that, that is very sober. It is sober. Because the last words of a person are the most personal they will give, and they often, often, not always, but usually reflect the priorities of a person and their greatest heart concerns, the most personal things on their heart. And this was true of the Lord Jesus Christ. We'll look at those words here in a moment. Um, When they nailed him to the tree, to the cross, and then they lifted they attached that cross beam to the lower beam and lifted it up and dropped it into the hole at 9 o'clock in the morning. He was there till 3 o'clock in the afternoon for six hours. And during those six hours, he, he said seven statements, seven sayings, some people say. And in these seven statements are truths that give us his purpose but also some of the most precious things about the Lord Jesus Christ. I had never done this, but this past week I I went in and I put these on a piece of paper and I counted the words. Now listen to this. And by the way, when he said these, the first one was, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. He's not hanging there and looking down and in a very... um, Stayed way the way they would say it in movies. Father, forgive. No, he he couldn't breathe. He couldn't hardly get the words out because when they died, they were fixated, and he's laboring to breathe, much less to talk, to be able to to to, to get these to get these words out. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. In the seven separate sayings on the cross from 9 a.m. till 3 p.m. in the afternoon, there's only 59 words in English. I want you to think about that. In six hours, he only said basically less than 60 words. Think of that. You know, we, we talk about the, the seven sayings of Christ, and they're so full of meaning, but in these, in these seven brief 
sayings, and they're very brief. They're, they're so full of meaning. We come to the, the second saying, and we'll look at it in a moment. And the subject is salvation, but, but within that topic, we will look at this, is, is the subject of hope. And we talked about this last week. You know, we all need hope. But did you know that your hope, your hope, your sense of hope leaks when it's in the wrong place? It happens to me. I'm sure it happens to you. You get discouraged. When your hope is misplaced, it begins to leak. The Bible says in Proverbs chapter 13 and verse 12, hope deferred maketh the heart sick. Hope deferred. The word deferred there means to postpone or to extend for a long period of time. When my hope in something isn't realized very quickly and it's postponed, it's deferred. And the word heart refers to your whole person, your mind, emotion, and will, your whole being. It's really your inner being. It's who you are. It's your person. And the word sick there has the idea of being weary, even depressed. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. But when the desire cometh, that is your hope is realized, the Bible said it's a tree of life. It's a source of blessing. And, and your hope always leaks when it's in the wrong place. And there's kind of two categories where we need hope. First of all, is in this life and also for the next. You need hope. Someone said it's difficult to live without hope, and that's not true. It's impossible. It's impossible to live without hope. Someone else said hope is like oxygen. You cannot live without it. I agree with them. Do you know why people take their lives? One reason, the dominant reason, they don't have hope. Hope is gone. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. It's, it's misplaced. It's in the wrong place. Even godly people can come to the place in their life where their perspective is skewed and clouded by circumstances and pain, and they begin to, to lose hope. A man in the Old Testament whom God said was the godliest man and the best man in that regard on the planet at the time was a man named Job. In Job chapter 1, you know the story of Job, how he lost his family, he lost his health. He didn't lose his wife. He lost her confidence for a while. He lost his crops. He lost his wealth. But he, he lost everything that he had, and, and he was in great suffering and pain. He really even lost his friends. And there's a scripture that just grabs me in Job. Listen, listen, this man was a godly man. He was a good man. But in Job chapter 7 and verse 6, the Bible says, My days are swifter than a weaver's shuttle. I think you can YouTube this. I, I've seen it. And when they would make garments or shawls, uh, they, would, they would shuttle that with their feet. And the rapid moving of the thread going back and forth, that's what he's saying. My days are going as fast, rapidly as that shuttle would go. That's how fast my time is going. And notice what the best man in the world said. And they're spent without hope. Now he's talking about this life. Because when you read Job chapter 19, he had a lot of hope. But in this moment, in this moment, in this moment, he was without hope. I remember um, years ago I, when I was going through some great adversity in my life. And I was asking a man who had had some tremendous trauma in his life physically. And uh, because I had heard him speak and I knew that he'd gone through some adversity. And we were in a very small group of that we all knew each other. And uh, I think there were four or five of us there. We knew each other well. And I kind of risk myself the time where I was at emotionally and mentally. I said, well, how, how do you handle discouragement? 
have you ever been depressed? Because my soul, he, he was, he said, oh, no, no, I've never been depressed. And I didn't believe him. Number one, I didn't believe him because I'd heard him talk about it. And two, I looked at him and, and knew where he'd been. One of the reasons I, I love Johnny Erickson is her utter transparency. She says, you know, there's times when I feel like when I see Jesus, the first thing I'm going to do is, is I'll, I'll bow down before him. I won't walk. I'll just bow down before him. I won't need this wheelchair. But there's other times when I see Jesus, I'm going to, the first thing I'm going to do is throw this wheelchair into hell. And you read after, sometimes she talks about the bed sores because she can't move and she doesn't want to call her husband to move her because she aggravates him so much having to take care of her. And she's just so utterly honest. And she has such a great hope. And I, I want to talk to you for a minute. This is, this is indeed about salvation. It's not the, the utter thrust of the message, but some of you and Maybe others that are watching today, maybe you feel you're, you're a godly man or a godly woman. And you can't tell anybody the, the feelings of your heart because you, well, you're not supposed to feel that way. What Job did, as I was studying this, and I already knew this, I have a message that I've had him prepared for preparing. It's just not ready to be born, I guess, on grief and how people grieve and how you handle it and how you come out of it. Did you know that the word grief is used in the book of Job more than any other place in the Bible? But I didn't know it until this past week as I was studying that the word hope is used in the book of Job as much as any places in the Bible. You have grief and you have hope there. Job said, my days are spent without... Now, he got it back. Oh, but we need hope in this life. And then we need hope in the next life. We have a, a lot of questions, a lot of mysteries. May I say this, that if, if you're the kind of person that won't answers now, you'll be a miserable person. First Corinthians chapter 13 says, we, we, Our life is like looking in a glass darkly means like looking in a mirror that uh, I was trying to comb my hair this morning and uh, and it was all clouded up because of the shower and I had to clean it off you know it's it's kind of I can't see very good it's cloudy that's the way life is sometimes you can't see it doesn't make sense if you're the kind of person that well I want to know why you're it's all of that's going to be resolved later and our hope for the future. But I want you to see something here because our hope is in the gospel. Your hope is not in you. It's not in your intelligence. It's not in your connections. It's not in how clever you are. It's not in where you go to church. It's not in your family name. It's in Jesus. It's all of that other stuff when you're on your deathbed. That's going to be torn down, if you will. I remember my, my friend Jimmy Stollard passed away four years ago last week, and uh, he preached here in July, and then he passed away the following March, and he had cancer when he preached here. And then Eileen, his wife, called her son to come down from New York who had a church up there and and she was going to move to Nashville to move in with her daughter and um, she had all of these books and she had all of these files she came to Huntsville to visit his grave and Paul and I took her out to eat and she's sitting across from, from us she's telling me this story and she said, Rick, I, I had all, all of these files for all these decades that he's pastored. And everything in those files he had touched. And all of his sermon notes. And she said, my son lived in New York. He couldn't do anything with them. And my daughter had a limited room and I couldn't do anything. And 
what are we going to do? And she said, it broke my heart. As we began to carry all of these things that my husband, that was my husband's life, his life's work out to the trash. She said, it just, it just devastated me. And I never thought about that. I'd never thought about that. And I began to think about my life's work. I began to think about all, all of the, the things that I'd invested my life in. Of course, it's people. But all of the hours. Some people call it intellectual property. It's not intellectual property. It's what God has given Who's interested in that? Will it be carted out? Because there's no room. Listen, my my hope is in the gospel. Your, Your hope must not be in being remembered. Your hope cannot be in what you think is important. Your hope is in Christ. Some verses that my sister, and I think of her so often as she's battling cancer. In Philippians 1, 20 and 21. According to my earnest expectation, that means to watch persistently, Paul is saying. I, I'm persistently watching this. According to my earnest expectation and my hope. My hope. The word hope there means to confidently believe and expect. Now, what was his expectation? What was his hope? That in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness as always. So now also Christ shall be magnified in my body. Whether it be by life or by death. Now, now listen to me carefully. Hope leaks because it's in the wrong place. But hope is not this ethereal thing. Well, you don't hope in hope. Listen carefully. Hope is in a person because hope is a person. Hope is Christ. Hope is Jesus Christ. And that's what he's saying here. My hope is in Christ. And then he says in verse 21, For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. And when my hope is in Christ in this life, then whether it's suffering, whether it's things that happen that I don't understand, my my hope is in Him. Whether it's in the next life, when I transition from that veil, from from the present to eternity, my hope is in Him. Because hope is a person. I, I think sometimes we think hope is hope. My hope is fading. Christ is not fading. You, you lose hope when your hope is misplaced. First Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 and 14, I... I will not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep. That means they were worried. What Am I going to see my loved ones again that have died? That you sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. There are people that, that do not have hope. What does that mean? They don't have Jesus. That's what it means. It doesn't mean they, they don't have this ethereal thing called hope to inspire them. They don't have Jesus. Because he defines that in the next verse. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so also them which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. So hope begins at the cross. Hope is not wishful thinking. Hope is not having a positive attitude. It's not denying reality. If I'm to have hope, there must be help. Or there is no hope. And the only help 
is in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the most powerful statement, and this is the big idea for the message this morning, is that Jesus died so you might live forever. Jesus died so you might live forever. So when you're standing by your daddy's bedside and he's dying, or your brother's bedside and he's dying, or someone is by your bedside and you're in your fleeting breaths, the hope is not that you're a church member or you're a good person or that you can well up something inside of you so that you can have hope. You can be the weakest person alive, but if you have a strong, not a strong faith, but a strong Christ and a strong, mighty God, as my daddy used to tell me, everything's going to be okay in this life and in the next life. Every person can remove the fear of death by coming to Christ and being saved. Now I want you to look at the text with me in Luke chapter 23 and verse 32 because there was a man who was losing hope. Luke 23 and verse 32, and there were also two other Malefactors, those are criminals, very wicked criminals, led with Jesus to be put to death. And when they, the three of them, were come to the place which is called Calvary, there they crucified him and the malefactors, one on the right hand and the other on the left. So Jesus was in the middle. Here's a first statement from the cross and said, Jesus, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And they parted his raiment and cast lots. And the people stood beholding. These are the people on the road walking by. And the rulers also with them derided him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he be Christ, the chosen of God. And the soldiers also mocked him, coming to him and offering him vinegar, and saying, If thou be the king of the Jews, save thyself. And a superscription also was written over him in letters of Greek and Latin and Hebrew. That is, so everybody could understand it. These were the three languages of the day. This is the king of the Jews. One of the malefactors which were hanged railed on him. The word railed means to speak negatively to another. It means to to speak cruel things began to rail on Jesus, saying, If thou be the Christ, save thyself and us. But the other, the other malefactor, answering, rebuked him, saying, Dost thou not fear God, seeing thou art in the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man hath done nothing amiss. And he said unto Jesus, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And here's the second statement from the cross, verse 43. And Jesus said unto him, Verily, I say unto thee, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. There's four lessons of that salvation here. Number one, the simplicity of salvation. We looked at this last week. In verse 42 there, when the one thief said, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And the Lord Jesus answered that simple prayer when he said, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. He didn't have time to be baptized. He didn't have time to do good deeds. He didn't have time to repay the debts that he owed from the people that he stole or to make restitution. The only thing that he could do was to cry for mercy. That's all he could do. There was no so-called sinner's prayer that we sometimes offer. It's not bad. All he could do was say, Lord, remember me. It was a desperate cry for faith. And God honors desperate cries. Simplicity of salvation. But the second thing I want you to see today, and I just want to spend some time on this this morning, was the cost of salvation. The cost of salvation. 
Now, we're not sure if these two thieves, these two criminals, had ever heard of Jesus or knew who Jesus was. Now, I think they did because the Lord Jesus was well known in that region, and I especially think that they knew who he was that week because he had raised Lazarus from the dead the week earlier. And that miracle had gone all over the place. And I think they especially knew who Jesus was that day because they were paraded with him, the Bible says, from the place where they were being held to the place of the execution. And they heard the accusations of who he was. And the accusations were indeed true. And there where they were being crucified together, all of the things being said about Jesus, though they were said in mockery, they were indeed true. And so on each side of the Lord Jesus, here were two men, both in desperate need of forgiveness. Both would listen, with limited time to live. They heard the same sermon, that is, Father, forgive them. They heard that. One man responded, and one man did not respond. One man asked to be forgiven. One man asked to be Remember, the other man continued to mock Jesus. That's amazing, isn't it? That I can preach the same sermon, two people can hear the same sermon and respond to it in different ways. Listen, don't, don't be discouraged with that. It's your responsibility to give the truth. It's not your responsibility to, as to how people respond to it. There's a place in Athens, Greece. You can go there today. I have never been to Italy there, but it's called Mars Hill. It's a it's an outcropping of rock. <clears throat> in that day, people came to to debate and to hear debates. And the intellectuals of the day would come there and they would debate topics. The Apostle Paul went there, and he began to preach about Jesus, and he preached the gospel. And there were three responses that were given every time. Today, we still see those responses, but they were given to Paul that day. In Acts chapter 17 and verse 32, notice this. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, that is of the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's the first response. Some mocked. The word mock means to ridicule, to express contempt for. They rejected the message. They said, we don't believe that. We don't believe a man can rise from the dead. They rejected Jesus Christ. Paul preached the truth. They rejected it. And others said, here's a second response, we will hear thee again of this matter. The second response is one of procrastination. Well, let me think about it. I want to kind of consider that again, and and I'll just kind of roll that around in my mind. Then in verse 34 is a third response where the Bible says, Howbeit certain men clave unto him and believed. You have three responses there. Rejection and mocking, procrastination, and then you have some that just believed. They said, I receive and trust Christ. I believe that message. And basically, that's what happened when Jesus was giving the simple message, Father, forgive them. And one of the thieves believed, and the other thief rejected. But in the middle, in Acts chapter 17 and verse 33, there's a very frightening line there. In the middle of the mocking and the procrastination and the belief, the Bible says, So Paul departed from among them. Paul left them. He was gone. Who was to say that they, they ever heard the gospel again? And as I've said before, there were two thieves. And some people say, well, I like that deathbed conversion Aspect. I'm going to waste my life and live for the world, the flesh, and the devil. And I'm going to wait until the last moment, and I'm going to come to God, and I'm going to be saved. But I want you to remember that there were two thieves. 
One of them wanted nothing to do with God. And if there's a stirring in your heart today to come to God and to be saved and to know Him, do not assume upon the grace of God. There's a verse when God began to, right before He gave Noah the instructions to build the ark, in Genesis chapter 6 and verse 3, the Bible says this, in the earliest parts of the Scripture, the world was becoming very wicked, and He was going to destroy the world. The Bible says, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he also is flesh, yet his days shall be an hundred and twenty years. My spirit shall not always strive with man. The word strive there means to bring to a place of conviction. It's a legal term. It means a, a judgment. Uh, it has the idea of God dealing with their conscience to contend with their lost state. God is striving with them. He's trying to bring them to conviction. And so in that present time, he speak, he's dealing with them. But here's what the Bible says. Listen, he says, my spirit will not always do this. My spirit will not always strive with people. Now, it, his spirit, his Holy Spirit did not always strive then. And his spirit will not always strive with people today. Don't assume upon God. More people are saved when they're younger than they're older. Very few people are saved when they get older. That's Genesis chapter 6 and verse 3. Noah built the ark. And then he and his sons and their daughters and his wife, eight people, entered the ark. Not one person got saved in that wicked world. Not one except his sons and his daughters-in-law. And then in Genesis chapter 7 and verse 16, and the Bible says, And they that went in, went in male and female of all flesh, as God hath commanded him. Now look at this. And the Lord shut him in. And the Lord shut him in. You see, God is the one that shut the door to the ark. Noah didn't have ropes pulling this thing. God, the Lord, shut him in. Now, that means two things. Number one, it was great security that that door wasn't opening until God wanted it to open it. God protected them. They were saved and they were safe. But secondly, it was very sober because that meant that the door was shut to those outside. Can you imagine when the rain, because it had never rained before. I don't have time to go into it this morning. It had never rained before. When it began to rain and then rain and then rain and the floods began to come up. And use your imagination. I wonder if anybody was able to either float upon anything or swim up and begin to knock on the sides of that ark. Well, they weren't getting in because the Lord had shut them in. Maybe, maybe you're here and you say, preacher, you're trying to scare me. Yes, I am. Yes, I am. Because you cannot assume upon the grace of God. The Bible says in numbers of places, seek ye the Lord while he may while he may be found. There were two thieves that day. And here, here's, here's the good news. Here's the good news. Don't, don't think that the thief, that the thief that cried out for mercy and said, Lord, remember that he was kind of a good guy. He was just as rough hewn as the other guy. In fact, if you'll notice this in Matthew chapter 27 and verse 41, Likewise, also the chief priests mocking him, that is Jesus, with the scribes and elders. This so touched my heart the night when I watched this, all that Jesus endured, said, He saved others, himself he cannot save. If he be the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross, and we will believe him. He, he trusted in God. Let him deliver him now, if he will have him. Have you ever noticed that? If God will have him. For he said, I am the Son of God. Now, now look at the next word. 
The thieves, plural. The thieves also which were crucified with him cast the same into his teeth. Remember, he was there for six hours, nine to three. Both of them, even the one that said, Lord, remember me. He was hurling these insults at Jesus too. But, but there came a time when his heart came under conviction. Was it when he heard, Father, forgive them? Was it when he realized who Jesus was? Well, if you look in your Bible there in Luke chapter 23 and verse 39, we read it. And one of the malefactors which were hanged railed on him. This is the one that rejected him, saying, If thou be Christ, save thyself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Dost thou not fear God, seeing thou art in the same condemnation? The word rebuke means to give a sharp disapproval, to forbid. I wonder how the one that was criticizing Jesus, and I wonder how he felt in that moment that, wait, I'm on an island by myself now. I don't have my buddy over here helping me now. He, he's softening up some. Because when you get under conviction of sin, you begin to soften up, if you will. You begin to change your perspective. And there were three revelations about Jesus that brought convictions. Number one, Jesus claimed that he was able to forgive the sins of others. We read it in verse 34 when he said, Father, forgive them. The old boy that said, Lord, remember me. He knew he was guilty. He knew his time was limited. And he heard a message that said, I, I can get forgiven. And only God can forgive sins. He must be God. He can, he can forgive me. I need forg- I'm dying. I feel it. I feel it when I try to breathe. I'm dying. Those soldiers are going to come by in a minute. I've seen these. I've been by here before when they ask you, they're going to come by and break my legs in a minute when I can't lift up anymore and I'm going to suffocate. I don't have much time. He saw it in Jesus' claim that he was the Savior. In verse 35 of Luke 23, And the people stood beholding, and the rulers also with them derided, saying, He saved, he saved others. Let him also save himself. If he be Christ, the word means Messiah, the chosen of God. So this man, the thief is saying, this man claimed to be the Savior. He's the forgiver. He's the Savior. He's the Messiah. He's putting the pieces doctrinally together. He can forgive me. He can save. I need to be saved. I'm going to hell. I fear the next life. I have no hope. I'm facing judgment. And then Jesus claimed to be the king. In verses 36 and verses 37 of the chapter, the soldiers mocked him, coming to him, offering him vinegar and saying, If thou be the king of the Jews, save thyself. And then the banner over Jesus' head in verse 38, the superscription written over him in letters of Greek and Latin and Hebrew, This is the king of of the Jews. It's interesting what he said. He said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom, and you can't have a kingdom without a king. He knew he was a Messiah. He was Jesus. He was a Savior. He was the He was the King. He said, Remember me. Someone said this was the first gospel track that had ever been written that was over the head of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this man's heart was Fully under conviction. In verse 39, one of the malefactors which were hanged railed on him, saying, If thou be Christ, if thou be Christ, save thyself and us. If thou be Christ, they had heard that this man was Christ. You see, as I told you last week, there must be head faith before there's heart faith. It's one thing to believe in Christ. It's another thing to believe on Christ. They were beginning to believe in Christ. That he claimed to be Jesus, but this man believed on Christ. Remember me. Remember me. And so the thief that came to Christ and the thief that was saved, he knew that Jesus 
did not deserve to be there. He knew that he de- the thief deserved to be there. He knew that this was a substitutionary death. Notice in verse 40, the other thief answering rebuked him. He's rebuking his buddy. Dost thou not fear God? By the way, that's one of the evidences of, of conviction is the fear of God. The severity of the consequences of your sin is taking you to hell. I'm under condemnation. Seeing thou art in the same condemnation, this is my, my state, the thief says, and we indeed justly, I'm condemned, I, I deserve to be here. We receive the due reward of our deeds. Now look here, you, you see he understands his state. Everything we're getting, we deserve it. We deserve this. But notice the next line. But this man hath done nothing amiss. Nothing. And he knew who Jesus was. But what he didn't fully comprehend was that there was going to be an exchange where the, the Lord Jesus Christ was taking all of this man's guilt and Jesus was going to give him his complete righteousness so that when God saw him, he saw him as doing nothing amiss because of the mercy of God. And the only, listen, you'll never be interested in mercy until you see justice. In fact, there is no, there is no mercy without justice. And this man was running for mercy and remembrance in the kingdom because he knew that there was justice. Repentance is a change of mind. Have you ever repented? You ever repented? I told the guys the other day, we were a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about this. I said, you know, I'm careful about the word repentance. It's in the Bible. But people define it different ways. Most people define repentance as a change of life. That's not repentance. That's reformation. I can change my life without repenting. Repentance comes from two Greek words, metanoia. It means to change, it's a change of mind which leads to a change of life. The change of life is the fruit of repentance. And when I repent, I change my life about who God is, about who I am, and about my sin. Paul said this in Acts chapter 20 and verse 21, testifying to the Jews and to the Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. In 2 Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but his long-suffering to us were not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Repentance is not works. Repentance is is not works. It's a matter of your heart. And once you get saved, you repent every day of your life. You are a continual repenter. And you change your heart. David repented every day of his life. Again, you see this in this, this man's words as he began to change his words about the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus, when he looked at him and he said, you know, why are you mocking the Lord Jesus? We, he didn't do anything wrong. We deserve this. And the thief had nowhere to turn but his own guilt. All he could do was to come to the Savior and say, Lord, remember me. Luke 23, 42, remember me. And listen to this. Jesus could have rebuked him for his sins. No, you deserve to be here. You hurt people. You beat people. You stole from people. You took advantage of people. You deserve to die. Jesus could have rebuked him for waiting so long. You've wasted your life. And now you come to the end of your life and you want some of what I have? I don't think so. Jesus could have rebuked him for mocking him on that day. I am your creator. 
and you dare mock me with the tongue that I created in your mouth. He could have rejected the man outright. But he didn't. He said there in Luke 23, 43, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. Because the Bible says in John 6, 37, Him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. I don't know where you've been. I don't know what you've done. But grace goes farther than where you've been and what you've done. You say, well, Brother Rick, I think I'm going to wait till the last minute still. Here's what the old Puritan said. Listen to carefully. He said, there is one such case. He's talking about the, the thief that turned to Christ. There is one such case recorded that none should despair, but only one in Scripture that none should presume. Don't presume and assume upon the mercy of God. What is your future like? What is your hope in? You say, well, Rick, I had a bad church experience. Well, so have I. Everybody in here has. I will guarantee you that if I went to every person in here, they could say, well, I had, I had something bad that happened in church. Join the crowd. My hope is not in the church. Well, my pastor did something. Well, well, I've had some pastors do some things to me. And I've probably done some things unintentionally to some people. Join the crowd. My hope is not in the church. It's not in preachers. My hope is in the Lord Jesus Christ. And until we come to the place where we realize that Jesus died so we might live forever. Today, are, are you hearing him? Is he stirring in your heart? Is he bringing you to a place of conviction? Do you know that he is your king, that he is your savior, that he is your redeemer, that he loves you? And he can save you if you would just flee to him. Say, Lord, remember me, save me, forgive me, I need you. And he, because he paid the cost of salvation. He paid it. He doesn't ask you to do it. Him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. Would you come to Jesus today? Do you hear him calling you? One day he may not call. Do you hear him calling? Should you bow your heads with me? Would you do that?